Welcome to the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is to strengthen and equip church and ministry leaders just like you through practical and theological discussions about some of the most pressing and important issues facing the local church today. We feature conversations with members of our team here at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, as well as interviews with authors and thinkers from around the world. You can follow The Essential.Church on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Watch episodes on our YouTube channel and also subscribe to our podcast via iTunes and Spotify, where you'll find a full archive of previous conversations. And now, here is this week's episode of The Essential Church Podcast. Welcome to this episode of The Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, and today I want to pick up where we left off in our conversation with Dr. Lucy Pepiat on rediscovering Scripture's vision for women. In the last episode, we just started to get into the text a little bit, talking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and with the beginning of this next episode, I ask her a very pointed question about her interpretation of Genesis 3 and what it talks about what the text means when it says that the woman's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. Lucy has a great perspective on that, as well as on a lot of what Paul says with his household codes and head coverings and all of that. We think that you're really going to be challenged and strengthened by this conversation. So without further commentary from me, here's to the interview. So then what in your view is happening in Genesis 3 when the text says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you? What does that, what does that mean as you take it? Yeah, so this is another issue where, where so so with the Genesis 2, um, people will say because the woman was made after the man that she's subordinate to him. So right. that's one of the claims, right? Mm-hmm. So and I don't think that's warranted that so uh, so we talk about I talk about that in the in the book. Yeah, um, you, you, you point out that human beings are made after birds in the air. Does that make us subordinate <laughs> to the birds? You know, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's not it's a it's a flimsy claim, yeah. Yeah. you know, we say. Um, so it doesn't have the weight that I think they would like it to. Uh, so Genesis three sixteen, that's a that's very interesting um, because this is when God. So so human beings have uh, disobeyed God and eaten of the fruit of the tree of um, knowledge of good and evil, and and God. Um, speaks over them what they the the world that they've now created for themselves Mm. that's how I would put it so it's like God kind of reveals to them Uh. you are now going to have to live with um now uh, that's how I see it and I I choose my words carefully because I know that there's there are traditions within our faith that would say that these are kind of God's curses now over them, right? Right. Oh, you did the wrong thing. And now I'm going to make these bad things happen to you. But I see it more like you knew, you knew you shouldn't have done that. Yes. And you've done it. And now this is how it's going to unfold. And this is going to be awful for you. Um, And he told them they were going to die. And these are the signs of death come upon them. That, you know, that's what I think. Mm. Um, so it's horrible. I mean, it, it, sometimes I, I read this and it just, you think, gosh, this should make us cry, you know, yes. just kind of read it yes. and you think this is the horrible, horrible thing about yes. the world is all in front of us here. And and so in, in 16, he says to the woman, he said, I will, in, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. 
in pain you shall bring forth children mm. so this is her suffering yeah. that he's describing mm. and then um he says yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you so in my the way i understand it is that what god is saying is that this is encapsulating the dysfunctional yep. relationship between male and yeah. female from now on it's so good okay let's let can we zip over to paul for a moment <laughs> there's a couple places uh in you know in paul's letters that deal with what sometimes scholars call household codes you know the instructions in ephesians mm. 5 and and you know uh, Colossians has something like that. And so there's these injunctions, you know, wives should submit to their husbands. But tell us a bit about that, about household codes in general, and, and what really might have been the more explosive thing that Paul was saying to the church here between husbands and wives. Hmm. Well, household codes are, were a normal um, part of the ancient world. So uh, ancient people, Greek and Roman and the Jews would have been used to mm -hmm. literature mm -hmm. that had household codes that were kind of uh, normally addressed to the men to say, this is how men behave and this is how women behave and this is how we set up a household. And within that context, um, what I say is that the idea of the man as the head or kephale mm -hmm. of a house um, is very normal. I mean, that's how a man of a household would have been understood in the ancient world. So Paul actually isn't making any great different claim right. about a man. He's, I think it's um, a descriptive, not a prescriptive mm -hmm. uh, term in Paul's letters. So that the, ma the male of the household is the kephale, mm. um, the head. But so what's fascinating about the Christian household codes that we have, so they're in Colossians and Peter and, um, and in uh, Ephesians is the most well-known one, I think, is that um, they address the women directly, which I think, which scholars say is, is very unique, you know, that um, the women and the slaves in the household and in one of them, the children, children yeah. are all addressed. Um, which is very unusual because they are addressed directly. Now, also, the other thing that's fascinating is that we, we must always remember that the Bible was read aloud. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is not, people didn't sit in their little rooms reading their Bibles to themselves. The Bible was proclaimed, mm -hmm. and these letters were read out in whole gatherings of churches mm -hmm. together. So we have to imagine that you have a house extended households and whatever households made up this church that gathered in somebody's house, say Lydia's house or Chloe's house or Nympha's house. Mm -hmm. And um, and these would be read aloud. And so the women would hear, this is what's being said to you and the slaves is what's being said to you. And then they would also hear, this is what's being said to the man yes. in front of them all. Yeah. And this... When I when I sort of began to absorb that, yes. I thought, but wait, this is really powerful, yes. like yes. subversive Versus, teaching yes, yes. that these apostles are giving to these men in the ancient world, because what they what they are saying to them 
is um, your wife now is your only sexual partner, right. mm. which was really radical for the men in the ancient world. So normally, if in a household, the slaves, both the male and female slaves, could be taken by the master yeah. for yeah. sex. And um, in and the Christians in in our household codes are vetoing that. Yeah. That's now off the table. <laughs> so the the men are called to a much much higher standard than any of the men that live around them, and they are called into this uh, monogamous loving relationship with their wives, and to, and they're called out to that in front of the whole household. The whole, yeah, so yeah, the yeah. yes. Everyone's. Yeah, yeah. Every, everyone's listening to this saying, oh, the men are supposed to be like Christ, to love their wife as Christ mm -hmm. loved the church. So would it be fair to say that the structure of the household um, might have been one that was assumed or even inherited from the cultural norm, but the spirit of the household is what is revolutionary. And it, particularly in Ephesians, this follows the whole text on being filled with the spirit. And what the spirit does th that is so revolutionary is that it relativizes power differentials, as you've pointed out, kind of levels the ground a little bit by, uh, by the dignity of addressing women and slaves and children. Um, and it, it, it adds a, not just that dignity, but that sense of mutuality, because now we're all before Christ and yep. we are all uh, to give an account for this. So the effect, as you say, of reading this out loud is to, to, to level it. No, well, the only other thing I was going to say, which I, I is that I don't, what I really don't understand about evangelicals is when they teach on marriage, they always start with Ephesians 5. Right. And I don't understand why we don't start with 1 Corinthians 7. Right. And, and that, and I, because 1 Corinthians 7 is amazing teaching on marriage and it's from Paul. It's just, yes. you know, it's not like we're pitting anyone against anyone else. Yes. Um, and it's really radical the, the mutualism that he brings in yes. there ordinary and ties in very well with our reading of ephesians 5 yes. and 1 peter and um colossians that he's actually bringing in so like you say glenn he's not overturning the structures he actually isn't and i think sometimes i sort of feel like oh i wish he had sure you know? totally <laughs> I read it here thinking, oh, she'd gone a bit further. And but but he doesn't. And that, you know, they don't they don't overturn slavery, lock, stock, and barrel, and we all know that. And yeah. but there are seeds in there yes. that make us realize yes. that he was not happy with the no. oppressive systems that he was brought up with, I don't think. And so. as I you point out, there's an apologetic and evangelistic value to this. So if the Christian religion, the early Christian religion, comes off as too revolutionary and too rips the social fabric, it yeah. gets squashed. So what he's doing is really subtle and really intelligent, as, as Glenn says, which I think he says so well. The structure seems to be held intact, but the spirit, the seeds of a revolution are planted inside this structure, which is just fascinating. Well, and, and pastorally, I'd be curious, Lucy, what you'd say to this, but sometimes with couples in the church, we'll say, look, you can set up the structure of your home however you want. Because sometimes, you know, a, a woman might say, but I don't want to make all those major decisions. I'm happy for him to make it. 
And I'll say, well, the structure is almost sort of up to you guys to decide. But the spirit of the home needs yeah. to be one of mutuality and dignity uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and even ground. And just know that the scriptures don't bind you into a particular structure for your home. Mm-hmm. Is that good pastoral? I, I think so, Glenn. I mean, I, I think you guys probably have more of that in your in your culture mm. than we have of mm. of couples sort of saying well this is how we want to do it you know yeah. we want yeah. to have a complementarian structure um but i th- i think that's right it's kind of i feel like i think i say that in the book you know you can do what you want in your marriage but but don't say it's scriptural right don't say, you know, don't say we're doing this because it's biblical yes and also do be aware of the effect that that will have on your girls and on your boys. Yes, yes. Bringing them up, you know. I mean, I want, if I had had girls, I didn't have girls. I had four boys, praise God. <laughs> but if I'd had, if I'd had girls, I, I would have wanted to bring them up to feel, you know, to have that sense of empowerment that they could yes. say what they thought and yes. they owned their own convictions and they were, you know, respected for their views and et cetera, et cetera. So I think couples need to be careful in what mm. they do, but yes, I would go with your pastoral advice. Lucy, we've got five or six minutes left. And so I wanted to save uh, one of my favorite parts of the book for last. And that's the doozy here. I think you do a great <laughs> job. As people read your book, they're going to come off with a great impression of how Jesus treats women and dignifies them. And Paul, how Paul was very revolutionary in his view of women. And so they're tracking with you and then they go, Obey, but wait. Yes. What about First Timothy 2? Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. And I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Oof. So here is that one text of Paul that kind of just is like this mountain peak peak jutting up from the ocean that goes, okay, now wait a minute, all that you said about women and Paul's vision up to this point, doesn't this tell against it? Talk to us about some of the historical work that you've done that actually sets 1 Timothy 2 in context and helps us understand what Paul is doing there. Yes, well, I uh, borrowed the work of two people which who were extremely helpful to me. One is a man called Gary Hogue, who is American. Well, they're both American, and a woman called Sandra Glan, and um, who I've subsequently connected with on Twitter, and so that's great. Um, and I, I actually put the two together because they both have very interesting and I think good insights into the possible context for the letter, uh, which is a letter written, uh, well, the, who wrote it is contested, but let's say, <laughs> yep. let's say it's Paul to Timothy mm-hmm. for the sake of ease and um, uh, to Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. And that Paul is giving Timothy these instructions of what he should do, even though he's young, um, that he needs to go in and tackle various issues in the church. And so everyone's agreed on on that, that there are issues in the church and that they are manifesting. The worst one is false teaching. Mm -hmm. So uh, and he even names two Alexander and Hymenaeus, these two terrible water, you know, we think one of them got him put in prison, etc. So. Um, so false teaching is Paul's main problem in this church. 
And what Gary Hogue and Sandra Glan do between them is they put different perspectives on the context of, so, so the contemporary Ephesus was a place where the Artemis cult was central. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that this goddess, uh, so there would have been many women part, as part of the cult and many of them would have been wealthy, very wealthy women, and would have been in position, leadership, perhaps priestess positions in the cult, and then would have, some obviously converted, came into the church. And it seems that it's very likely that these women were among the false teachers. Mm. So we, you know, as we read it through a kind of complementarian lens, we're just imagining all the time that the right. people that Paul is addressing as his co-workers and deacons and etc. So we think men, but actually, once you break that and realize that he's talking to mixed groups of men and women, and mm-hmm. it's clear he is because there are many women co-workers yep. that preach yep. the gospel and you know teach and lead churches, so. Um, he's he's addressing the false teachers, uh, and a lot of us think that some of the real problem ones were women, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, they were formidable, and they were authoritative, mm-hmm. and they were teaching falsehood. Mm-hmm. And so I unpick those verses along with using the work of Hogue and Glan. Mm-hmm. Um, to construct a picture of how these women actually the the way that they're dressing is not just showy mm-hmm. or sexually provocative but they're actually dressing in the way that they would in the cult yes in uh, imitating, imitating yep. Artemis. yeah so so which is obviously a way of channeling a kind of um cultic you know syncretistic uh distorted yes um ideas into the church and um so he says you you should forbid them from dressing like this with their braided hair so there's amazing uh specificity overlaps Mm -hmm. yeah between the letter our letter and um a a very funny little novel um called ephesiaca um, by Xenophon. Anyway, it's too long a story. You have mm-hmm. to read the chapter, yep. but it's great. And I really enjoyed doing the research for that chapter yep. because it made sense of something that had never yes. made sense yes. at all. And that's what I found so fun about writing this book was that passages that I had kind of half ignored and half tried to wrestle with and not really made much progress with when I really applied my mind to it yes. and started really reading around, I thought, gosh, there are ways of making yep. sense of it. Yep. And, and you, it, you, you explain some of the more, um, you know, sort of troubling phrases in that, in that text, the one about the braided hair, you're like, what, what is Paul's issue with braided hair and jewelry? You know? And it, and so you say, no, no, this was what they would do to imitate the priestess. But then the, the other part of it was um, the reference back to Genesis, that the woman was deceived and not the man. And, and I think you point out in the chapter that in the cult of Artemis, they had taught that men were ontologically inferior to women and that women were sort of superior. And so the reference to Genesis is a way of saying, well, hang on now, women have this role in the fall, almost again as a leveling up, but yeah. le- leveling down where both male and female before God are fallen. Yeah. And there's not one that can claim 
uh, superiority. And then the third one was the, but they shall be saved through childbearing, which I can't tell you how many times has been distorted <laughs> to say, well, this woman just needs to get married and have start having kids right. and then she'll be useful to the kingdom. But you point out, no, in the cult of Artemis, like the, the threat was if you were not faithful to the cult, you would... Uh, you would die in childbirth. And so in a very real sense, that phrase could be read, you'll be kept safe in childbearing, right? Yes. Well, so so what Sandra Glan brings out, which I thought was really helpful, was that she talks about Artemis, specifically Artemis of the Ephesians, because there were a number of different Artemises around. Mm -hmm. And that this this Artemis was the goddess of childbearing. Mm -hmm. So she was the one who would protect the women right. through the process of childbirth, which is, it, to me, this just makes perfect sense that if you have, if you're a woman in the ancient world, then every child is a death threat, obviously. Right. Um, you know, you need, if you had a goddess who was going to look after you while you were going through your pregnancy and your childbirth, you would go to that goddess. Yep. And, um, and it, yes, and if you made her angry, presumably she could, mess you up during your childbearing yep. um and apparently they believe that if if it's a long story of her own story artemis um mm. but she didn't have children she was a virgin goddess and because her mother had suffered through childbirth and so they believed that if you were suffering through childbirth and you were in danger of being killed she could either rescue you or she could it, dispatch you she mm-hmm. could enact a mercy killing yeah. and you know and end your suffering so it, these things are very powerful narratives and if if you i think of myself as a woman you know going through those things if yeah. if i was brought up being told you'll be safe if you sacrifice to artemis even if i've become a christian yes. wouldn't you be Yes, she'll be safe. To be, yes. you yes. know, oh, I'll hedge my bets. Yes, here. Right. exactly. <laughs> um, you can put all the no. chips on the table with God. With this God, exactly. that's what Paul and is doing. So it makes such sense if you continue yeah. in love and faith and holiness. Yes. And, you know, if you, not just if you, but if you keep stay close to God, hmm. keep doing these things. He's the one who's going to protect you through Amen. childbearing, not Artemis. Amazing. Lucy, I just love your work so much. We're so grateful for your presence here. The book is Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, Dr. Lucy Pepiat. And uh, uh, what I think is so fabulous about it is that you just take the text of Scripture with such seriousness. And I think if our listeners, especially those who are on the fence about this, if they'll follow your arguments, I think that they'll be, uh, they'll be challenged. So thank you very much for your work, and thanks for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me.